Hello and welcome to the Stanford Psychology Podcast. My name is Rachel Calcott and today I have the pleasure of chatting with Professor Oriel Feldman Hall at Brown University. Oriel studies the neural basis of human social behavior and uses methods ranging from functional neuroimaging to game theory and learning models to investigate how we learn to cooperate, how we decide whether to reward or punish others, and the critical role of emotion in shaping our social interactions. In this episode, we discuss Oriel's recent work on how the emotions that we expect to feel shape our judgments and behavior, as well as the complex relationship between emotion prediction and depression. We also chat about Oriel's experience of having her research findings misinterpreted on Twitter, and how some of the best research questions might originate in coffee shops. So without further ado, welcome Professor Oriel Feldman Hall to the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome you to the podcast this morning. I thought we could maybe start off with a recent paper you published on emotion prediction errors. So I'm really fascinated by how emotion guides behavior, and this paper does a really insightful job of explaining a possible mechanism for this. So firstly, could you maybe explain for our audience what a prediction error is, and then how emotions that we expect to feel actually shape our decision making? Sure. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for having me on. I'm delighted to be talking with you this morning. So this is uh, work led by one of my graduate students, uh, Joey Hefner, who's now um, doing his postdoc at Yale University. So an emotion prediction error is basically this idea that we can learn about the world not through the expectation of the different rewards that might come our way, but rather the expectation of feeling certain emotions down the line and what the violation of those expectations are. So a reward prediction error is this idea that expect a reward to happen. Then there's a violation of that expectation. The reward does not happen. And there's therefore a mismatch between what your expectation is and what actually occurs in the real world. And by having this mismatch between your expectation and what actually happens, you can update what your expectation is. So if the reward doesn't occur, then you update uh, your experience of the world to be more aligned with what uh, the environment is. And there's a really rich and now long um, literature showing that prediction errors, reward prediction errors in particular, are potent drivers of behavior and learning in animals and rodents and primates and in humans. Now, what's interesting about this whole field is that reward is not well-defined. And so when we say a reward prediction error, what we meant in the original instantiation of it, which is uh, some of Wolfram Schultz's work from 1997, is animal getting some sort of food delivery. Okay, so like getting juice or cheese or grape or a hit of some cocaine or something like that. That would be what a reward is. 
if we think about it in terms of AI or computer science, we can take, we can abstract away from the fact that it might be some sort of food and we can say that it's anything that gives us hedonic pleasure or something that we are motivated to increase or get more of. So for humans, if we're sitting inside of a casino and playing a slot machine, that's really easy, right? We want more money. And that has a very easy mapping. The problem is, is that when you move into the real world and you especially move into places where you're interacting with other people, reward is ill-defined and it cannot be boiled down to simply monetary increases or even just eating cake all the time. Like if you ate 10 cakes, you feel really sick. And at a certain point, you'd want to stop, right? So it's there's this interaction that drives these things. But in the social world, things like smiles, which at first blush seem really rewarding. Like if someone smiles at you, that seems great, right? That's like a nice, positive reinforcer. But what if someone smiles at you after you trip? Now, there's a context there that changes what the value of that smile is. And so one of the ideas that we had now a couple of years ago is that what, when we talk about these reward prediction errors, a better proxy for taking those external rewards that we experience out in the world, like a smile, like money, like juice, whatever it might be, whatever is turning those external things in the world into something that humans value, there need some sort of transformation needs to occur. And emotions are a really good candidate for how this transformation occurs. So if you are about to interact with someone and you are expecting to feel a certain way when you interact with that person, and then that interaction, let's say it goes south or it's much better than you expected it to be or whatever, that mismatch would drive your update would drive you to update your model of the world and to change your behavior accordingly for next time. And so that's the simple idea behind an emotion prediction error. It's simply taking this idea that there's a prediction error in general that updates learning. So that is the violation of some sort of expectation, applying emotion as a construct that drives expectations and violations of expectations. And that is actually a really good learning signal. And Joey's work shows that when you directly compare emotion prediction errors to reward prediction errors as operationalized by money, like in a social interaction, a social exchange game, emotion prediction errors typically outperform monetary reward prediction in being predictive of choice, social choices. That's amazing. I guess one question that I have here is that people often think of emotion as ineffable, really hard to pin down, maybe best expressed in poetry, but you're in the business of the science of emotion. And I'm curious about how you operationalize create scales of things such as emotion? Yeah, this is such an important and great question. And part of me wonders whether all of these beautiful models that we have about learning, like reinforcement learning, that are so simple and elegant and describe so much of very simple animal and human behaviors, the reason that they haven't incorporated emotion into the equation literally is because um, emotion is so hard to first of all define so if you ask a whole bunch of different emotion researchers to define emotion you'll get half a dozen different answers people don't even have haven't even settled on a definition that everyone can agree on the second challenge is that emotion is extraordinarily difficult to study not only because people don't agree on its definition but because 
it's ambiguous. It's elusive. There's lots of different ways to parse the space. And depending on which lineage you come from in, in, in the field, you could have a bias towards exploring emotion, for example, by using skin conductance responses or pupil dilation, which would look at the body's physiological response. You might use something like self-report. So if I say, tell me how angry you are right now on a scale from one to 10, you and you would tell me like, I'm a two or I'm a seven or whatever it might be. There's lots of different ways to probe emotion, but people don't agree always how to do it. The way that we ultimately decided to measure emotion was using the rather famous circumplex. So there's this idea that's now, gosh, like more than 30 years old, that says that you can partition, I'm going to say affect in this case. So there's something called core affect and core affect is partitioned into valence. So that's something being either positive or negative along the continuum and arousing from being highly alert to being sleepy and quite relaxed. And one of the beautiful things about core affect is that there's biological tethering. So if you look within the brain or you look at pupil dilation or skin conductance response, you can see these different dimensions at the physiological and neural level. So that's a really important feature of core affect that makes it really nice. Another great thing about core affect is that you don't have to say, are you feeling? And then insert a discrete emotion. So you don't have to commit yourself to guilt or regret or anger or any other specific emotion, which, you know, in some of, for example, Joey's other work, what I consider to be anger and how I experience anger might be very different than how you experience anger and what you consider anger to be. So it looks like from some of his other work that there's two camps, let's say, of anger. There's those who don't feel aroused when they're angry. They might have like something like quiet anger. And then there's a larger group of individuals who feel arousal in tandem with anger. So like a more of a rage type of experience. But because anger doesn't mean the same thing to everybody, using it, using that particular word can elicit different responses. And it also pushes boundaries on what the person's experience might be. In fact, again, in some of other Joey's work, what he shows is that when we ask people questions that are very explicitly pigeonholing someone into feeling a particular emotion. So for example, if you feel, if you, let's say, get an unfair offer in the ultimatum game or some sort of economic game, asking how angry are you assumes that they're angry rather than saying, like, well, what emotion are you feeling and leaving it more open-ended. So core affect gets around some of, some of these issues. Yeah. A really interesting facet of this paper is that you find that this choice to punish or forgive can actually be decoded in less than a second. Is that right? From an evolving emotional response. But I imagine that most people, when they think about why they made the decision to punish or to reward, would say that they reasoned their way to that decision. So I'm wondering how you think about the relationship between reason and emotion in the decision-making process and whether participants are even aware of the influence of emotion on their decision-making. Yeah, that's interesting. I think there's a I'm, I have to say that I'm not a huge fan of the whole system one, system two, dual process idea. I think it's an oversimplification of what is happening and whether there's different versions of dual process, whether it's seesaw, like or not, meaning emotions up and reasons down or reasons up and emotions down. So dual process says that 
that people approach different things in the world, whether it's a choice, a judgment, an action using two different systems. One that is, I'm using all sort of the very stereotypical words, but hot and impulsive and quick, and that is believed to be emotion-driven, and one that is slow and cognitive and reasoned. And oftentimes the hot, impulsive, emotional one comes on first, and then you know, for especially for applying this to the, the moral literature, this is where it's become, I think, a little bit more hot, a hot topic in recent years, that the reason then comes on as a post-talk and you can reason your way out of whatever that hot, impulsive, let's say, moral judgment might have been. I, I think you can create experiments like Jonathan Haidt did with his very famous sibling moral vignette that show that an emotion comes online in a very quick, effortless way to guide a choice or to guide a judgment, in this case, a moral judgment. And then once someone pushes back on that moral judgment, but saying like, well, they they promised to never do it again and there would be no feelings hurt and there's no, no possibility of a child or whatever, that the person who made that quick judgment then sort of starts to reason out of that initial hot judgment that they made. But those types of vignettes and and case studies are chosen precisely because they perfectly fit the mold of the argument of like dual process. And there are so many things that we do in the real world that don't fit into that perfect little vignette story of how it's emotion first and then reason or whatever. The idea that emotion that the emotion that someone's feeling that comes on super quickly and can be decoded within, I think it's like even less than three quarters of a second. And that is a predictive of choice is powerful, but I don't think it has to stand in contrast per se to a reasoned, rational type of operator, nor that there's any, that there might not be any interactive effect of reason as the emotion is unfolding. So in this particular data, what you're referencing is, So as I mentioned, Joey had the ability to mouse track, to track the person's mouse as people were registering what their expectations of emotions would be, what their actual experienced emotions were. And what happens is that as soon as the mouse starts moving, you can track its trajectory as it moves towards its ultimate spot. And within three quarters of a second or so, the the trajectory of that response was so strong that we could predict whether people were ultimately going to punish based on the feeling of the emotional experience that they were having or the effective experience that they were having. So I think what that shows basically is just how powerful emotion is and that it's a early on readout. Now, in unpublished data, something that we're working on right now, Joey has taken this work to, to EEG. So for the readers, EEG is recording neural activity basically on the scalp. It's an incredibly sensitive temporal measure. And one of the things that Joey wanted to do by using EEG in this type of emotion prediction paradigm was to see if he could decouple reward from emotion in time and in space, localizing it to different areas in the brain. And what he's found is that emotion actually doesn't come isn't processed first. The reward is. 
which was really surprising and counterintuitive based on not only his data, but also lots of other people's data. So I think the jury's out a little bit on, again, like what the interplay between reward and emotion is and how they probably have interactive properties with one another in terms of guiding a choice. But it's not necessarily a straightforward story of like emotion being this really early on and quick response. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. It'll be fascinating to watch that research evolve. Yeah, another fascinating element of this paper is that it goes into depression and the relationship between depression and emotion prediction error. Can you say a little bit about how depression alters the way we make decisions and its relation to emotion? So the fields of mental health, especially like mood disorders, like depression, but also anxiety, depression in particular has been characterized as both a disorder of emotion and reward. And so when you look inside the brain and you try to track the areas of the brain that are not, that are either attenuated in response or not always performing in the same way as in those without depression, what you classically see is that areas like the amygdala and the medial prefrontal cortex, the anterior insula are an ACC are all involved in depressive episodes encoding like how a response to emotional stimuli and those with depression. You also see attenuated responses in classic quote-unquote reward regions like the cauti and the striatum and the VTA and so on and so forth. And so if there's a lack of clarity in the field of, well, is depression about reward and like attenuated reward processing? Is it about emotion and attenuated emotion processing? And it looks like it's about both. So a natural extension of some of this work is to say, okay, well, let's test this idea that emotion and reward predictionaries carry some unique variants, that they are in, in and of themselves parameters that capture different parts of the experiences. Like reward predictionaries, we're still predictive in our data sets and to our choices. It's not that they don't have any predictive value. They do, and they have quite a bit of predictive value. It's just that emotion is also very predictive, in fact, more predictive, and they work sort of side by side, right? They're, it's not just one or the other. So But let's test whether individuals who are described as having deficits in both reward and emotion, which one of these prediction errors are they more reliant on? Which are they using more? So what we found is that when we compared individuals who had clinical levels of depression using um, a classic um, depression scale, they had perfect use of reward prediction errors. It looked exactly the same as individuals who did not report any depressive symptoms. However, when we looked at both types of emotion prediction errors, that is valence and arousal, we saw effectively no use of arousal prediction errors and highly attenuated use of valence prediction errors. So what we take from that is that alongside the other data in the other cohorts, these emotional prediction errors are a really useful signal to learning about the world and what one should do. Because you also saw that these attenuated prediction errors in the emotional domain changed behavior. So people were punishing at different rates in the the depression group compared to the healthy control. Yeah. Wow. That's such interesting work. I'm wondering if we can actually pivot a little bit to some of your work in morality. And one of the stated goals of your lab is to find a unique quantifiable emotional signal that deters humans from engaging in self-interested and antisocial behavior. I find that such an interesting goal. And I'm wondering how you think about the progress 
made towards this goal thus far and what might be the consequences of identifying such a signal beyond the academy? Oh gosh. Okay. So I probably wrote that in like 2016 when I started mid lab. I would say that Joey's work is quite helpful in making headway in towards quantifying some sort of emotion signal or figuring out a way to very cleanly operationalize it in the lab so that we can study things. Really. So I would include altruism and cooperation and all these punishments all under the hood of morality, broadly speaking. I don't feel that we have a good handle on the breadth or the strength of emotion prediction errors. I feel like this is just the beginning of this research trajectory. There's a lot left to do and we're following up with a lot of different questions currently, including like bringing it into the scanner, fMRI. But I, but my lab has also pivoted in other ways. So we have multiple different tracks within the lab, including um, an entire line of research that I believe is probably not well reflected on the um, website because even though we've been working on it for more than three or four years now, it's been slow going and it takes a lot of fine tuning the paradigm before like we can get some of our experiments to work. And that is understanding how social networks are represented by cognitive maps. So basically what this is a long way of saying that what, when it came to Brown in 2016 and what I set out to do in a more very focused strategic way has along the way been there's been many garden paths that have turned into like full-blown research agendas that are very exciting to me but have definitely limited the progress that we could make on for example this idea of quantifying and measuring the impact of an emotional signal on moral behavior yeah that makes sense excited to see that work on the representation of social networks well, at the end of these sessions, we like to ask a few questions about your own journey through academia. And you recently had the unfortunate experience of having a graph wildly misinterpreted and picked up by a Twitter mob. And this is just a, an interesting case study almost of what academics engage in when they share complex scientific findings with the world. And I'm wondering if this experience has changed your approach to that. Well, I think that the crazy thing about that particular experience was that it was other scientists who were doing, I would say, a very poor reading of our data. So I don't need to call anybody out in particular, but there's a few men on the internet who fit into perhaps a larger category of making comments online about other people's work where the comments were made. And then there was like a, of course, a big pile on and so forth. And this, and to be fair, I should say that like, I certainly learned my lesson to like not publish rain correlate or sorry, not um, visually display rain correlated data. At the same time, the data is what the data are. And I'm not really like somebody or do I want to promote a whole ethos of like hiding data because they don't look perfect or they don't tell a perfect story. And I don't think that's the right attitude or right path to take. What I really felt was like inappropriate about that whole response is that the initial poster didn't seem to have any desire to engage with the data themselves, just wanted to get clicks on the internet and people like piling on and saying like, oh my God, this is the worst garbage, take away their PhDs and, you know, whatever else was, you know, said about, um, about us. And also, by the way, 
the lead author on this was as a first year graduate student in my lab. So it's like one thing to go ahead and attack me, but like I feel very protective of making sure that my people are not being, I don't really know how to say this, but I, I just felt really bad about how that situation unfolded. Gonsha is inflappable and she's like quite amazing and she took it in stride very well. But, you know, I, for example, if that was my first, first author paper and I had been like that and going around on the internet, I would have been beside myself. So I think it's unfortunate that the way that people engage now on the internet, especially on Twitter, is in these sort of like flashy, like let's take another person down. I think we're seeing some of this unfold right now with the whole HBS fiasco and Data Colada publishing in a four-part series, what this particular professor at HBS, like the data fabrication that she was involved in. I just don't, I wish people were more generous of spirit on the internet. Maybe that's asking too much, especially when I study social behavior. <laughs> but I, I do wish, especially amongst scientists, that people both believed good intent as priority number one, and were also like slightly le- ne- less nasty to each other. If people wanted to have a conversation about whether it's, for example, like how much are we really gaining when we like take things about like politics, for example. So our story in this particular case has nothing to do with being like on the left or the right, being conservative or liberal, but has to do with like how people are interpreting information, whether you're conservative or liberal, it's just whether you have like ideological extremism and how you interpret that um, uh, information. If you want to have a conversation about using neuroscience methods to understand politics, that's a good and healthy like debate you could be having. But like to go ahead and take some plot because you don't understand how rate correlations work, like just feels um, very rookie to me. Yeah, right. That was wild to watch unfold. But thanks for providing that explanation. Maybe as a last question, I'm curious about. The process that you described as you taking garden paths after you arrived at Brown and what it looks like to develop your research program, where those initial ideas came from, and then how you decide that an idea is an interesting enough one to pursue. Oh, yeah. Interesting question. So I don't think that I have, I would say, like a strategic larger goal that I hold in mind that I'm constantly working towards. And I know not everyone is like this. I think that there's some people, some of my colleagues who I love and I think do like amazing work who have very consistent, stable research agendas and work toward that in, a, in these very careful, thoughtful, beautiful, long narratives over time. That's not how I work. And what happens to me is I'll have like an interesting conversation with a colleague or maybe not even a colleague, but a friend, like having a coffee or a drink and it will spark something that I'm thinking about, or I'll read a paper and I'll think about it in a new way relative to a study that we just run, but like coming at it from a completely different angle. And then we'll do a study. And like the, my, what, one thing that I love about my lab is everybody in the lab is really creative. Like that's something I really care about is bringing people in who are not just like great scientists in the methodological sense, but like creative people and thinking beyond just the boxes that we like come from and the lineages that we've been taught in to think more broadly about how there's intersectionality between different fields and different even um, topics. Um, 
And so if we do a study that shows something interesting about some little thing that would like happen in a conversation, then that can generate like a whole field and a whole host of other questions that come up and that are really can be really quite exciting to pursue. And I personally love that about science. Like for me, that's why this doesn't get old. I am not studying the same thing that I set out to study when I started my PhD and that is social cognition. But the way that it's turned and refracted over time has changed. And for me, that's a very liberating thing to be able to do is to be able to follow interesting ideas that come into your mind and that seem to have teeth because initial data suggested it's really interesting. And that's how I followed it. It's like following my heart, not my brain. I don't know. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, I love that. I love the idea that science is often originating in coffee shop conversations. I think that's something I resonate with. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time, Professor Felman Hall. And thank you. Thank you so much for having me and for this conversation. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this episode interesting, we'd love to hear your thoughts or any recommendations for future guests that we could bring onto the show. You can also subscribe to our Substack at Stanford SciPod to interact with other listeners or follow us on Twitter. It just takes a second, but it will allow us to reach more people and make them excited about psychology. Thank you and have a wonderful day and start to 2024.